I'm Bev, but I need, I, we gotta get with you. What comes to your mind when you, when you hear these words? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Or as the New King James renders it, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What obviously would come to your mind is the institution of marriage, the marriage relationship. Because it is in that context that Jesus spoke those words. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder or separate. Matthew 19 and verse 6. But you know that principle, what God has joined together, let not man separate, is a principle that permeates every aspect of our lives. Think about it. What God has authorized, what God has declared, what God has joined, man cannot change. Now, man has changed an awful lot of what God has joined, but he had no right to do so and has no right to do so. And this morning, I want to begin a brief series of lessons. We'll continue it tonight, Lord willing. A series of lessons where we're going to look at some relationships that God has established which cannot be changed by man's whims, man's wishes, man's will, man's creeds, man's prayer books, man's doctrines, but that truly we must respect and appreciate and maintain that which God has joined. We're going to look at the fact this morning that God has joined himself to the world, to this universe. Tonight, Lord willing, we will look at the fact that God has joined himself to his word, not just to the world, but to his word, and that that word is authoritative. As the series continues, we're going to look at the fact that God has joined himself to Jesus, and that you cannot come to God without Jesus Christ, though there are many in the world today who contend otherwise, obviously. And yet you cannot have God without having Jesus. God has joined himself to Jesus. But then we're going to look at the fact that God has joined Jesus to salvation through the cross. But we're also going to see that salvation through the cross cannot be separated from the church to which God has joined Jesus through salvation. And we're going to look simply at the church that we read about in the New Testament, the pre-denominational body of believers that had its beginning on Pentecost Day long ago as recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. That same pre-denominational body of believers that, that exists here worshiping according to the New Testament pattern and that exists in many places throughout our world today. Tanzania was mentioned where the Evans labor. The church of our Lord exists there and in so many other places where the New Testament pattern, nothing more, nothing less, is being followed and where the creeds and traditions of men have been discarded and abandoned, as we should, and where the plea is for all of us to unite upon what the Bible teaches, that and that alone. But you know, before the series ends, we're going to also look 
ironically, at what God has separated. And that'll be the final lesson. What God has separated. What has God separated that we dare not join? We'll look at that, the Lord willing, in this brief series. But this morning, think with me about the fact that God has joined himself to this world. Oh, the atheist, the atheist wants to separate God. The agnostic wants to separate God, to doubt that God had anything to do with this marvelous creation that we are blessed to be a part of, including the creation of ourselves. And yet God's existence is so evident in creation. Paul knew it and spoke by inspiration in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What Paul reminds us of in this passage is that those who claim that God had nothing to do with this universe are without excuse in their claim. Because God has made evident by the things which we can see, He's made evident the things which we do not see, but which we by faith believe in so very, very strongly. What did the psalmist say on the subject? So beautifully in Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language in which their voice is not heard. The heavens speak to us, the psalmist declares, so to speak. They declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork day after day, night after night. It is evident to the objective observer that God created this universe. Paul in Acts 14, 17 said, Nevertheless, he did not leave us without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. That passage tells us there's something good in the creation and that there's something of God's goodness that we should be able to see in his creation. He did good, Paul said, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food. And gladness. When you go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you find the word good used six times in chapter 1, and at the end of the chapter you find the phrase very good in verse 31, as God looked upon everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Oh yes, the atheist tries to separate God from his universe, but God's creation cries out in response with a resounding, God is. God is. I've mentioned this approach before, but I like to think of the three letters that comprise the name of our Creator, God. The G, the O, and the D, and let each one of those remind us of a very powerful argument for God's existence. Let the G suggest guilt. And guilt is not a very popular word in our society today. People do not like to think about guilt. People do not like to think about being guilty or feeling guilty. 
guilt is not a good thing in the minds of most people, but just the opposite is true when guilt is properly understood and approached. You see, because the guilt should represent to us a very powerful argument for God's existence, and that is the moral argument. Because morality and guilt are inseparable. You really can't have morality without guilt. The argument for morality is simply that man is a spiritual being with spiritual needs and with a conscience. And that that conscience urges him to do what he thinks is right. And when he doesn't, he feels guilt. But think about matter itself and the morality of matter. How much morality is there in a rock? Do you know any rocks that are moral rocks? Of course you don't. Matter is not moral, is it? And so, if man is an innately moral being, and he is, if man is an innately moral being, then his innate sense of right and wrong had to come from something other than a rock. It had to come from something other than a big bang out here in outer space that supposedly produced this orderly universe, about which we'll speak more in a moment, that we now exist in. Matter is not moral. Therefore, that innate sense of right and wrong must have come from intelligence. It must have come from the perfect moral being, God. And when man violates his conscience, from what source does the capacity to feel guilt originate? Where does it come? Materialists cannot explain conscience. Years ago, and I've mentioned the debate that our brother... Thomas Warren had with the most popular and prominent atheist of his day at that time, Dr. Anthony Flew of England. And in that debate in the mid-70s, Brother Warren pressed very strongly the moral argument for God's existence. And he spoke about the Nazis and the trials that took place, the Nuremberg trials and why was it that those men were ever on trial if indeed there was no higher moral law that they had violated? And he pressed that point very effectively. And Dr. Flew had a very difficult time responding to that. He admitted they were guilty. They should have been on trial. But upon what basis? Upon the basis of the existence of a higher moral law. If there's an existence of a higher moral authority, then where did that moral authority originate? According to the Nazis, their practices were not in violation of a higher moral authority if indeed they did not believe that authority existed. But Dr. Flew admitted they were wrong and that they had violated a higher moral law. Therefore, he admitted the existence of a higher moral law. Therefore, by implication, he admitted the existence of a higher moral being, that being being God. And animals don't have that same capacity, do they? You let a dog bite you, and what will he do? Go off and crawl under a car somewhere and pine away that he did something terrible. No. Chances are you don't get out of his way, he'll bite you again, won't he? And feel perfectly good about it. <laughs> because that's what animals at times do. Dogs biting men do not feel remorse. But men have that capacity. And guilt comes from God. Therefore, guilt is a good thing when we react to guilt properly. 
We've mentioned before that those on Pentecost Day, when they heard the gospel preached for the first time, they cried out from hearts that were burdened down with guilt. And what did they cry? Men and brethren, what shall we do? When Peter said, you have taken and crucified the Christ, this same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ, and you've crucified him. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were overwhelmed with guilt. But Peter told those who believed what they had been hearing to repent of their sins, to be baptized. They obviously confessed the Christ, and he said, and you'll receive forgiveness of those sins if you'll do what the gospel plan of salvation that was introduced on that day and still is in effect today tells you to do, you can be relieved of that guilt. And so those who heard it, who gladly received his word, listen to the word gladly, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. There was a transformation process that occurred from guilt to gladness upon hearing and obeying the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you this. Can a man harden his heart upon hearing the good news? Oh yes. But innately he's a moral being, but he can fight against it, and he can ultimately sear his conscience. And the Bible speaks of those who have their consciences seared as with a what? Hot iron. But innately we are moral creatures. But the devil works overtime, Keep the word out of hearts so that those hearts will not be responsive to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And many times, Satan works overtime to supplant and substitute the doctrines and teachings of men into those hearts so that they will believe they've obeyed the truth when in fact they've obeyed the teachings of men and have not obeyed the pure teaching of the gospel. Satan, with false religion, has in his hands one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tool at his disposal, and he uses it so effectively. Therefore, it is imperative that our consciences be open, receptive, properly trained, not seared and desensitized and mistrained. But the innate sense of morality that is common to man must have come from God. It could not have come from a rock. It could not have come from mere matter. And so if man will use this capacity to feel guilt for good... If he'll feel guilt for good, it will be of great benefit to his eternal soul as he obeys the truth. If he abuses this capacity, it will contribute to his eternal damnation. Now let's think about another argument. The G represents guilt. The O in the name of our God represents order. Order. The argument from order. The fancy name is the cosmological argument for God's existence, but... The cosmos, this universe, the word cosmos means order. We are living in an orderly arrangement of things. And that orderly arrangement demands an adequate cause for its existence. And so it's the argument that says there must be a cause for the cosmos. There must be a cause for this orderly arrangement we find ourselves in today. And that orderly arrangement is evident all around us. Specifically defined, the argument says, the cosmos is an effect. It's an effect produced by a primal cause, 
which from the nature of the case must be a person. I've mentioned before when we've talked about evidences that I could give you a proposed cause for this effect, which is this pulpit. This pulpit is an effect. It's an effect. And it had to have a cause. Something caused this effect. What was it? It was an explosion in a woodworking shop. That's what it was. And you don't believe that. You don't believe that. Of course not. But, Myriads of people have bought into the idea that an explosion way out there in outer space, supposedly millions if not billions of years ago, has contributed to the orderly arrangement, the cosmos in which we find ourselves. It makes no more sense than does the contention that this pulpit exists from an explosion in a woodworking shop. And yet we are told time and again, day in and day out, by the evolutionists, that we are the idiots, really, that we are the ignoramuses for contending that evolution is false and for not blindly accepting it. For since the creation of the world, remember Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Acts 14, 17 again. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Lance Ritchie and Bill Jenkins did not leave themselves without witness. And Greer Barger, I think, was involved when they combined their talents to do this pulpit. God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. It was a man named Thomas Aquinas who was said to be the first to formalize this argument we're talking about, the argument from order or the cosmological argument. He formalized it in modern philosophy. And here's what Aquinas said. He said, that which does not exist begins to exist only through something already existing. Therefore, if at one time nothing was in existence, it would have been impossible for anything to have begun to exist. And thus, even now, nothing would be in existence, which is absurd. You put that in a little syllogistic form, and it goes like this. Something cannot come from nothing, yet something exists. Therefore, something has always existed. And can the something that has always existed be mere matter? No. It cannot. Because you see, whatever caused the effect has to have the qualities of the effect and more in order to bring about the cause. And so, those who produced this pulpit had to have the qualities superior to this to be able to do it. God, God created rocks. Is God a rock? No. God created rocks, but God had to have greater qualities than the rock to create the rock. He created mind. He created personality. He created will. He created emotion. He must have all of these qualities. 
The universe is an orderly arrangement. That's the meaning of cosmos, order. But can such order exist without an adequate cause? No. Can a rational being come from an irrational thing? Can order come from disorder? No. Therefore, a rational being has always existed. So when you think of God, think of the letter O as order. And let it remind you of this cosmological argument that demands an adequate cause for this orderly universe. Now finally, let's go to the D. And quickly look at the teleological argument. That's the big name for it. The teleological argument. But the D represents design because that's what the teleological argument is. It is the argument from design. And it complements our last argument, the argument from cause to effect or the order argument. You see, it calls attention to the interrelation of the points of this universe, this cosmos, the interrelation to produce something good. In other words, there's something good that comes from all this order that we've just been talking about. The cosmological argument demands a cause for the order of things now in existence, and the teleological argument says the order of things was designed with purpose. And so the two arguments go hand in hand. This order is here for a reason. It was designed. William Paley set forth this argument back in the 18th century, and it simply shows that creation shows the glory of God. Go back to the psalmist in Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And in Job 12, 7 through 9, I love this text. But now ask the beasts, God says. Ask the beasts of the field, in other words. Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of God or the Lord has done this? Fish don't talk. Or do they? Birds don't talk. Well, some do. <laughs> but the point is what? God is saying, look at creation. Look at the intricate complexity and design that is so evident that just screams at you. And let that tell you something. Well, we've got time to mention a few of them. The Earth's orbit around the sun. The Earth's orbit around the sun departs from a straight line by only one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. Why is that significant? Well... If it varied by one-tenth or by one-eighth of an inch every 18 miles, then we would have either a larger or smaller orbit, and that would result in one of two things. We would either all burn up or we would all freeze to death. If it varied by that much. The sun's distance from the earth is 93 million miles. If we increase that distance by 10%, we'll freeze to death. If we reduce that by just 10%, we'll burn up. And yet the evolutionists would say when the Big Bang occurred, I guess it all just came into place just right. And it stays there just right so that none of this happens. What about the moon? 
240,000 miles from the earth. If we decrease its distance from the earth by one-fifth, there would be tidal waves of between 35 and 50 feet high twice a day over all the earth. And what about the human body? So much could be said about so many things, but the human body is a marvelous example of design, isn't it? Remember Anthony Flew I mentioned a moment ago? I have mentioned before at other times that Anthony Flew never became a Christian, tragically, but he did give up atheism before he died. What caused him to do it? Here's part of it. Of the cells, there are a hundred trillion in the body. Some so small it would take over 6,000 of them laid end to end to cover one inch. Each cell has 46 chromosomes. In each chromosome there is DNA, and that's what Anthony Flew got to, which determines hereditary traits, and these traits are locked into the DNA structure of every cell. Anthony Flew finally said, DNA has done me in, in effect, as an atheist. I cannot any longer accept atheism when I see the utter complexity of DNA. Think about the brain cells and how they work. What about the human eye? Charles Darwin said of it that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances could have been formed by natural selection. Seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. And then Darwin further stated, if, I could be dem if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. The eye is just such an organ, and Darwin's theory has long since broken down. The eye has 107 million cells with 7 million cones allowing sight in full color and 100 million rods allowing sight in blacks, whites, and grays. The eyes are connected to the brain by over 300,000 nerves and can detect light as dim as 100 trillionth of a watt. How did that eye evolve? What intermediate state between no eye and the perfect eye could nature have, quote, selected, unquote, to be passed on to successive generations to get us where we are today? As the psalmist declared in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Oh, oh, David, <laughs> if only every soul knew well the works of God. Oh, if men would start crediting the Father above with the works of creation rather than attributing them to mythical Mother Nature. Oh, how much better this world would be. So think of God and let the letter D remind you of the marvelous design that argues powerfully for God's existence. And so we've completed the three arguments, and what do we have? We have God. Guilt, the moral argument. Order, the cosmological argument. And design, the teleological argument, all lead us to God. And remind us of what the psalmist long ago wrote by inspiration. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. God has joined himself to this universe. And what God has joined, man must not separate. Remember Job 12, 7 through 9. 
But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And as we preview tonight's lesson, does it not follow logically that if God, who has shown us some of his goodness in his very creation, would reveal to his, us his ultimate goodness and his will for us in his revelation? Therefore tonight, Lord willing, we'll see that God has joined himself to his word. And how powerful and pertinent that word is and always will be until time is no more. This morning that word says to you, if you're not a Christian, believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That word tells you to repent of your sins. Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish. That same word tells you to confess sweetly the name of Christ before men with the promise that he'll confess you before the Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. And that same word, written word from the living word himself, says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do so, bring your life in harmony with his will. We plead with you to be a part of this series of studies. And I can assure you that if you have an open and honest heart, when this series is completed, you will certainly know everything you need to know to please God in becoming his child and remaining his child. But if you do know that, and you've heard the simple but absolutely essential plan of salvation this morning, we plead with you to respond to it. If you need to come home as a wayward child to your first love in repentance, confession of sin that's been committed in a public way, we're ready to pray with you and for you as a way to remember the Lord's body and invite you to come as we stand to sing to encourage you.